Well, we are back on the Ten Commandments after John's two weeks of giving you real information. <laughs> now we are looking at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. My introduction to this commandment came in uh, uh, two main ways. One, I grew up when we had blue laws. Some of you may not remember blue laws. You're too young. Blue laws were laws that the state had that nothing could be open on Sunday except for churches and gas stations, maybe a restaurant. And so if you needed to have bubble gum on Sunday, you had to buy it on Saturday. And there was a Sunday I didn't have any bubble gum, so I went down to the local drugstore, and lo and behold, it's closed. No bubble gum, tears flowing because of that. Or as it used to be, you, didn't, you never sold alcohol on Sunday. You had to wait until 10 p.m. Sunday evening before they would take the curtains away from the alcohol areas. That was one of my introductions. Then another introduction was with our daughter, Andrea. She went to a, a college that was associated with a very strict reform denomination. And so the first Sunday, she did what we normally do. She went out and she was throwing Frisbee with a new friend of hers out on the quad. And a resident assistant director came running out and looked at them and says, Thou shalt not throw Frisbees on the Sabbath. And she almost got written up for a demerit because they were throwing Frisbees on the Sabbath. This is the same college where, and uh, church affiliation, where they never sang anything but psalms on Sunday without accompaniment, a cappella. And it was beautiful music. But the choir, the traveling choir in which Andrea was part of, would go out and on Saturday night they would sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and Broadway tunes and whatever they wanted. But come Sunday morning, when they were in the service, only the Psalms. Because that's the only thing you sing on Sunday. You never sing anything else but the Psalms. That was part of the introduction of the Sabbath. And maybe you've had some very similar uh, views of that or similar operations with that. Uh, Today we're going to take a look at what is the Sabbath and uh, how the scripture defines it, okay? Let me review quickly the previous commandments. There's a progression that takes place and we've been working uh, that through that. It begins with a prologue as any covenant does who describes the person who is making the covenant, that is the Lord God who took them out of Egypt. The first commandment is that this person or the persons of the covenant shall worship only that person, that is the Lord God, no other gods besides him. After that, it moves into the no substitute. You're not to have carved images and anything like that. And then it moves into reverence. You are to keep his name holy and have reverence and fear of it. And finally, the fourth commandment, talks about the gathering for worship. 
Now, let me also let you know a little bit about teaching, my teaching style. Sometimes I say things that are outlandish or will make you angry. And sometimes that's intentional. It's like one person who was angry with something I said a few weeks ago, and the person came up to me and said, you really made me angry. But then I had to think about it. And the more I thought about it, I maybe he's not so much an idiot as he looks. <laughs> and that's the idea. That you get angry enough to think about what is being said and reflect upon it. Some of the things I say today may make you angry. But it's meant to do it in order that you think about it. I think this is a teaching style of Jesus, especially with the Pharisees. The Sabbath, the Son, Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And they went apoplexic. What do you mean by that? But they had to think about it. So let's take a look at the Sabbath. Our working phrase is on your outline. The sovereign Savior creates worshipers who grow as disciples, who treat him with all reverence and respect as they gather to worship. As they gather to worship. And let's begin by looking at the scriptures. And I have two, and I would have you to rise for the reading of the scriptures. You thought I forgot. You were right. <laughs> and then I realized, no, I got to read the scripture. Can't, can't talk without some kind of scripture as a basis. First from Exodus 20, beginning at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then from Deuteronomy 5, beginning at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And this is the word of God. And you may be seated. I have uh, every commandment, I have taken a look at it in three ways. One, it's a portrait of God because it has something to say about God. That's what the law does. The prohibition of the commandment, and then finally, the prescription of the commandment. We look at the negative, and then we turn around and we look at the positive about it. Portrait of God is that God is a very faithful God. 
he looks after his people. We call it his providence, his care. In the uh, description of the creation, Genesis 1, in the beginning of verse 2, you have him each day, evening and morning, creating one aspect of the creation. And you can either say it's seven straight days or there seem to be two, two parallel three-day segments that are in there. Either way, you want to look at it. At the end of every day of those six days, he goes, that's very good. That's good. That's good. I mean, that's kind of a southern way of looking at it. That's good. If you're uh, from Massachusetts and Boston, that's good. But the seventh day, it said he rested. Because on the top of the sixth day, he said, it's very good. And some people have looked at that as God rested? Are we deist? That means he created and all of a sudden he just let everything go and he just kind of sitting there in his barca lounger with his remote switching channels to find what he likes and, and all he's doing is letting the creation do its work now. To rest is to cease from the creation. He created everything that needed to be. Now he has moved from that creation to making it work and overseeing what it has. So he's not resting. In fact, if God ever rested in the sense of ceasing to overwatch his creation for one millisecond, everything would disappear because he's the power behind everything that's taking place. That's why it's serious not to worship, not to believe, not trust, not to follow God because you're following, you're doing that to the God who is the one who gives you every moment of life. But he is the one who is watching over. And if you look at that, you'll notice that at the end of the seventh day, there is no evening or morning. That day continues on without an end. So you have six days, evening and morning, but the seventh day, it continues. In one sense, we live in a Sabbath, and we are always living in the Sabbath, in one way or the other. God reinforces this as He, in His Word. Uh, this is from uh, Leviticus or Exodus 23 and Leviticus 25. He adds a couple other Sabbaths, ones every seven years. The people were meant to allow their ground to go fallow, not to not to do any work in the ground. And as you know, you can plant in the sixth year and seventh year, things will come up. But he said, I'll provide for you in that seventh year. Just don't go out and let's do the work. In our day and age, we have fertilizer and we exchange crops that we can to keep the ground fertile. But back then, they had to let it go. And then every 50th year was a jubilee year where they did that two years in a row. One the Sabbath year, and then the Jubilee. And God said, I will provide for you for those two years until the third year when you can get your own crops. It's God's provision, his providence, his work. It's also seen in manna. Every day while they're out in the wilderness, they got manna. They woke up and there was manna all over the ground. They were told, go out and get enough just for that day. And if you get more or you keep it overnight, 
it spoils. Maggots, cockroaches, and ants, and all sorts of things get into your manna. Except for one day. Saturday, you go out and get twice as much as you need. And the next morning, the Sabbath, the, the seventh day, you get, you wake up, and it's just as good as it was the previous day. You didn't have to go out and do any work on that day. He built this day in that it may be a, delay, a day in which we delight in the one whom we honor and enjoy the Lord God and his people. Usually when we think of the Sabbath, we think only about honoring and worshiping God, which is true, but we forget we, as Deuteronomy 5 tells us, we are to do this in order that we can spend time with our family and our employees and our livestock and just enjoy being with them. That was the goal of that day. He wants us to trust him for what we need and not what we want. And we can come and worship him and rest from the labor that we have done for the six days. Now, it's very interesting, six days, because in our culture, we expect people to work only five days. Maybe four. You can get away with four. And yet the scripture commands us, you will labor six days. So some of you need a second job. The five days of one and the one day at another, or two days, depending on, I'm teasing about that. But that's the difference in the culture. And in farmers, they know they're going to work, in a sense, have to work seven days. Our first church was a farming church. And these guys would come in at 9.30 on a very cold morning from having been up at 5 o'clock because bossy still needs to be milked. Or bossy will not be a contented cow. And it would not be good milk. And they'd fall asleep because it was a hot building and they were cold and they were tired and it had nothing to do with their spirituality. They had some things they have to do. But they also realized that day was a day set aside not to go out and plow, not to do work, but to be with God's people. That is a portrait of God. Second is a prohibition of the commandment. People were called not to work. To put down their labor as they pick up their trust in the Lord. So that day was meant to remind them of their trust. That labor can lead us to trust in ourselves. I produced that. I did that. I can make this. I can have that. And yet we forget that behind everything we do is the Lord God. He gives us the energy, the ability. He gives us the opportunities. And we really take that one day out to remember to trust him above all else. To cease means that we see and are reminded that the Lord is behind it all anyway. And then secondly, we recognize him for all he does and gives to us. Part of the Sabbath was to do, two, was to, to do a couple things. One, it was meant to remind them of the exodus that they had been in slavery and God had rescued them by the Passover lamb and then had brought them out and made them a nation. 
And every day, every Sabbath, they were to recall that story. As you read the Psalms, many of the Psalms continue to go back to that event. Or they go back to the next great event. And that is the return from the exile. That the people were taken from the promised land into foreign lands. And yet God, at the end of 70 years, brought them back into their land. And so they replayed how God watched over them. Even when they were faithless and untrusting. Yes, he disciplined them, but he brought them back. And that's where they were called to be. And so you remember those events, you know, for us, because we are on this side of Christ, it's a cross and a resurrection. We are called to remember that. And so the Sabbath is a day when we don't think about five rules for doing good work. We talk more about the cross and the resurrection in Christ than anything. And that's our focus. We read his word and listen to its exposition to be fed, but also to feed ourselves. You know, God on his Sabbath, on his Sunday, on his day of Lord's day, he puts before us a huge feast. I don't know about you, when adults come to a feast, you don't take a spoon and spoon feed them. You lay out the feast and then they have to take it in and feed themselves. That's what it's meant. Some people say, and I've heard this, says, I don't get fed on Sunday morning. That's right, only babies have to be fed. We spread out the feast. You have to take it and eat it and work with it. And then you sing the songs of Zion, sing the songs of the Lord. Colossians reminds us it's hymns, spiritual songs, and the psalms themselves that we sing. And since it also mentions musical instruments, we normally will have musical instruments. We are not a cappella, at least not yet. Or when somebody loses their voice or the guitar's out of key, right? And the, and the piano doesn't work, then we're going to be a cappella. But I want you to notice the seriousness of the command. Exodus 35, 1 to 3 talks about who the person who works on the Sabbath will be put to death. I think that's serious. I think that's saying that this is a day you really have to be careful. The day that you begin to deal with the first six days... It's as if we ought to have another pile of stones back there. And if you're not dealing with it on, if you're not taking the seventh day or the Sabbath or the Sunday or Lord's Day and you're thinking about your work, Scripture says you ought to be put to death. Or, Jeremiah 17, that passage in there, says the Lord kindles a fire which destroys his people. The one that always got me was the end of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is, in the Hebrew Bible, the last book. Uh, And it's one book we have split it into two parts because 60-some chapters is really too long for us Englishmen. And at the end, the writer of Chronicles is talking about how Jerusalem is captured and burned. 
And it says, the Lord took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 70 years was not just a number that God picked out of the sky and said, I think that's a good time. But for 490 years, the Israelites had not obeyed the word of God, had not fulfilled the Sabbath year of the land. And he says, for every year you fail to do that, that's the year you're going to spend in exile. 70 years, that means... If you were 70 and you were picked up and put in exile, you had very little hope of ever seeing the land of Ghent again. Maybe if you were five, they'd put you in the wheelbarrow and push you back to the promised land. You probably couldn't walk the distance. Most of the people that came back never had seen the promised land. Why? Because they forsook the Sabbath year. That's serious. That's how serious God looks at this commandment. Then secondly, or thirdly, we have the prescription of the commandment. There are two requirements for observing the Sabbath from our catechism. And eventually I knew I was going to get back to this catechism. Lord's Day 38. What does the Lord require in the fourth commandment? In the first place that the ministry of the gospel in schools be maintained, and that I, especially on the day of rest, diligently attend church to learn the word of God, to use the holy sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, and to give Christian alms. In the second place, that all the days of my life I rest from my evil works, Allow the Lord to work in me by his spirit and thus begin the everlasting Sabbath. You notice there's a day set aside and that day is for the ministry of the gospel and of learning. And we are called to diligently attend church. Used to be people came four out of four Sundays or five if like this month, we have fifth Sunday. And then it moved down to three out of five or four. Today, the average, they say, is one or two out of Sundays a person goes to church. There's just so many other good things to do. That's the usual excuse. Diligently means that you are there in church even if or because it's the day. No matter what, unless you are really, really sick, have had an operation, or even if you're traveling, you can find a church, a church to attend and be a part of. That's how important, at least the catechism says that it is. And that during this day, we maintain the ministry of the gospel and the schools, the teaching and the preaching of the word. And that I learn the word of God, that I use it with the holy sacraments, and it is a day to publicly call, to pray, and to give Christian alms. It's a day to do mercy to those who need mercy shown to them. 
On the second place, it's a day in which I rest from my evil works, and I use this day to prepare for my everlasting Sabbath, which is my final goal, my resting place. That is in Christ in eternity, in, his, in, in heaven. That's what we are called to do. We are called to take this day and say, well, Lord, where have I f fallen short from your word of God? How can I not only find forgiveness, but how can I now live in a newness of life? This day is a day that you begin to think about that or continue. Put it into work beginning tomorrow and work on it so that it will so that moving into your everlasting sabbath will not seem such a radical jump from the life you're living now that's what this day is for where do i need to change where do i need to follow you what do i need to do it's meant to be a day of growth so paul to the philippians in the third chapter says Forgetting what lays behind and pressing forward to what lays ahead, I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I think he's talking there, at least parenthetically, about this is what Sunday is. This is what the Sabbath is all about. This is what I need to be doing. Now, in the Reformed faith... We are faced with different manners in which Sunday is kept. You see, did you notice when I read those two passages, one from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, did you notice the difference? Most people don't. They just think, why, well, all the other nine commandments are exactly the same. Why shouldn't it be with number four? And then they read it. The Exodus 30 says, because God created in six days and rested back on a creation ordinance. But when you look at Deuteronomy 5, the reason Moses gives at that point is because God rescued you from Egypt. Your redemption is signified by that day. You were released from slavery and you were made a new nation. Flip that over into being those after Christ. We have been rescued from the slavery of our deadness and our sin by Christ. And we are new, now a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Once we were dead, now we are alive. See, that's the two ways in which you look at the Sabbath. It's a, and in Leviticus 23, number, letter, uh, verse 3, Leviticus, Moses kind of sums this up. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. There's a solemn rest, but a holy convocation, a time of remembering your release and what awaits you, where you're going. So it's worship. Timothy Keller puts it this way. The Sabbath is a declaration of freedom from the workplace identity placed on us by a culture. 
it's the difference between uh, people being doers or beers. Our culture is a culture of doing. In fact, if you want to be a part of this culture, you've got to be a doer. What's the, one of the first things, questions that people ask of somebody they've met? What do you do? And when you're retired, it's really difficult to answer that. <laughs> and that's what they want. What do you do? The scripture says, who are you? What are you becoming? Because who you are and who, what are you becoming defines what you do. Culture says seven days are for whatever you want. You work, pleasure, pleasure leisure, because we're doers. And on the, on the weekend, I'm going to throw myself in the weekend with all the gusto I can. Christianity says, no, we are beers. There are six days we work because God has given us talents and abilities. And he, we put it into work to glorify him and to give him the praise by what we do. And we throw ourselves into it. But on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, we are beers. That is, we remember who we are and why we do what we do. We don't do it to get money. We do it because we are children of God and we are called to be people who act like children of God. That's what this day reminds us again and again and again. There's also from this two understandings about using the Sabbath. One is a Puritan or the English. The other is a Continental Reformed. Puritan English comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, 8 to 9, and Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 115 to 121. I, I noticed in the Larger Catechism, they spend more time on this commandment than they do on all the others. There are more questions and answers on it. That tells you something about their mindset and how they looked at it. In the Puritans who were people of great joy. Don't ever let people say that they were not people of joy. They rejoiced in their worship, in their work, in their family, in uh, every day. I mean, they were people who really went around with smiles and delight in their heart. Why? Because they knew the God who had created them and remade them in Christ. But when you came to the Sabbath, the Saturday, yeah, what they call the Sabbath, there was a strict observance in, in line with the Exodus 28 to 11 passage. It was a day only for worship, only for devotional reading, only for doing things that would be considered spiritual and giving of alms and helping people. But you dare not throw a Frisbee. You dare not do anything that looked even like it was fun. How many of you saw Chariots of Fire? Remember that scene where Eric Lytle comes before the future king of England, Prince Edward. His race in the Olympics, for which he had trained diligently, was on a Sunday. And he said, I can't run on Sunday. And the, the Prince of England, future king, 
So she will not do this for your country? And says, no, I won't do it because I don't want to disappoint God. And he defied the ruling authorities in order not to run. Now the other part of that story is he ran a, a different race on a different day and one of his United States competitors handed him a note that said basically the Lord will honor him who honors him. And it was kind of a confirmation as well as a, uh, a boost to, to do his running. And sure enough, he ran and he won. Not necessarily because he honored the Sabbath. He could have run and, and lost because it was a race he had never trained for. But he fulfilled his idea of the Sabbath. Or take, for instance, Chick-fil-A. Because this is even more recent. Chick-fil-A owns the stands in Mercedes-Benz Coliseum arena in Atlanta, Georgia. They're bringing the, the uh, Super Bowl this year to that place, stadium. And Chick-fil-A says, we're not opening. What do you mean you're not opening? It's a Super Bowl. We're going to be packed to the rafters. Millions of people are watching and you're not opening? Yeah, it's Sunday. We don't open Sunday. The only reason we've ever opened on Sunday is so that we can cook food to give to those who have been in difficult, hazardous, horrendous times. But we're not opening. And the news, they, did, they went apoplectic about it. How can they not? This would make their billions of dollars. Well, maybe not billions. They said no. Because this was their understanding of the Sabbath. It was a Puritan English understanding. And they were true to their word. You know, I, I kind of rejoiced that they showed that being is more important than doing into our culture. Then you have on the other side the Continental Reform, which comes the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism in number 38 looks more upon the Deuteronomy 5 passage and it deals with redemption. Notice it had two parts. One, you are called to rejoice, to delight in the Lord, our new life, to worship, to maintain the teaching, to learn the word, to use the means of grace, to help the needy, to worship on that day. And second, to be renewed, to rest in order to be rejuvenated and renew your energy and your thinking and to allow others to do the same because they understood. I mean, you go out and somebody else serves you, they're not resting. But they did it not with the strict legalism of the Puritans. In fact, there are some who say that the Puritans in this manner were like New Testament Pharisees that met with Jesus. How dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath? How dare you do? How dare that your men go out and work on the Sabbath? And that's the way sometimes the Puritan reforms or those from that Westminster Confession look at it. In the Heidelberg Catechism, they say your primary responsibility is worship. 
and then to rest and relax. How do you rest and relax? You take a long walk. You play sports. You do things like that. This is what really, uh, really irritated the Puritans and the pilgrims, what we call the pilgrims. When they had to get out of England, they went to the Netherlands, Dutch Reformed people. And they considered the Dutch Reformed people, their cousins, as corrupting their people. Why? Because on Sunday they played sports. And back in England, you dare not play sports. And that was a corruption of their people. That's one of the reasons why they left there. One of many reasons why they left there and they went, came over here to America. Because they wanted to have a better atmosphere by which they could continue their understanding of the Sabbath. Now, if anything, in our country, we have gone far to the extreme on the idea of a seventh day of rest. We, if anyone does, like the college of my, our daughter, practice it that way, we kind of look and say, man, are you guys Neanderthals? You are really back there. And if we you know, kind of loosen it a little bit, Others would say, man, you are disobeying the word of God. How can you do that? We've gone to the opposite extreme. Sports on Sunday morning. In the fall, and I know it's going to happen as soon as soccer season begins, I drive down Woodman to get here. And as I'm making the bend on Woodman by the Air Force Museum, I look out in the fields and there are sports teams playing at 9 o'clock in the morning. I didn't know kids woke up at 9 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. <laughs> but they're out there playing their sports. Church members. Well, this is the only time I, my kid can play sports. So we, we want them to excel in sports. So therefore we Go to sports. It's okay. It's okay. We love Jesus. Uh, hold it. <laughs> Even the Heidelberg Catechism said, this is the day to be with God's people worshiping and doing that. That's the difference between the two. That's why there's a difference in the English, United Kingdom, and the continental understanding of how you, how you spend your Sabbath. Finally, let's see how Jesus transformed the day of worship. Number one, he solidified it as a day of worship. Luke 4, 16. And some of what I'm going to do, I'll pick up from what John has said in previous sermons. John 4, 16 says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. That meant... Wherever he was, when the Sabbath came, he was in the synagogue. And he was a traveling itinerary preacher. He went to where uh, he went around. And he made sure he was in the Sabbath. And there is where he unveiled himself to his own people, his relatives, his friends, his neighbors from childhood. And he said, I'm the Messiah. Almost got killed for it. But he, that was his way, that was his custom. He broke with the man-made traditions of the Jewish leaders. Luke 6, 1 to 6, 
the uh, leaders are questioning his, him, Jesus about his disciples, you know, kind of making their morning meal out of the grain, says, you're doing work. And Jesus looks at him and says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Mark puts a really interesting twist on this in addition. He has that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which it should be a divine, defining philosophy as you think about how are you going to celebrate the Sabbath. It was created for you, not you for it. You got to think about that one for a while, right? Luke 6 in 13 and 14, Jesus says it sees it as a day to set people free from their debilitations. Whether it was their sins or whether it was some physical difficulty, that was a day. And you know, he just, and I know he didn't probably do this on purpose, but he just really upset the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees looked at that day and said, you can't do any kind of work. In fact, you're not even allowed to walk more than, say, one mile from your home. So how would, what would they do? They'd go outside, they'd pick up a rock from their property, put it in their pocket, and said, I'm never more than one mile from my property because it's in here, my pocket. And then, so they'd walk as far as they want. And kind of go, oh, man. See, but they had made the Sabbath out of their traditions. And Jesus just blows that up. He also created a new Sabbath, which he can do. Because he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who is able to change it. He did it with his resurrection. Luke 24, 1 to 9. On a Sunday morning, he rose again from the dead. And he accomplished all of his new creation, his life that was going to be our righteousness, his death that was the appeasement of the wrath of God for our sins. He had accomplished it. He tasted death on our behalf. He rose again, and like God who rested on the seventh day, Jesus rested from all of his salvation work. From now on, he simply applies and oversees what he did to his people, just like God in the creation, didn't stop being God, but took what he had created and worked with it. And he brought salvation. In Acts 2, 1, 9, Pentecost, it occurs on a Sunday. It's the 50th day, seven weeks after the resurrection. It's a feast of weeks. It's the Passover, from the, from the Passover. And that is when the Holy Spirit is sent in order to recreate his people and to create his church. It happens on a Sunday. That's why we celebrate Pentecost on a Sunday. It's not like Ascension, which is always 40 days after resurrection and usually runs on a Thursday. And I haven't seen too many churches that have gotten together on Thursday to worship one of the most important days in the life of Christ where he ascended to heaven. You also see this in the church for they too changed from Saturday to Sunday as seen in 1 Corinthians 16 2 it says on the first day of the week collect the offerings. 
in order to be given. And that's because that's the day they gathered together. Remember in the culture in which they lived, you worked seven days a week. You didn't have, this, 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 the idea of six and one was a Jewish idea. But on Sunday, they gathered together, whether it's early in the morning or late at night, they gathered together and there's, there's where they worshiped. In Revelation 1.10 says, John was in the spirit, which is a way of saying he was in worship and in prayer on the Lord's day, that is on a Sunday. That's how they called it from that, then on. It was no longer called the Sabbath. It was called the Lord's day. And that's where he encountered the risen Christ. So you see the transition that takes place from the seventh day to what we might call the eighth day or the first day of the week. And every Sunday when we gather here, we gather to remember the resurrection of Christ. That's why it's our focus. And he was resurrected because he was a righteous one who appeased God on the cross. And therefore God had to resurrect him. And as scripture says, he resurrected himself because this is his salvation. This is his work. Now, you get to uh, the New Testament. And I have passages, Romans 14, Galatians 4, Colossians 2, in which the Apostle Paul again speaking under divine authority, says, be careful how you judge your, your brother about this day. Galatians 2, 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, which are all Old Testament references, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And in that, he, in essence, he is saying, okay, some are going to be scrupulous about wanting to have the seventh day. There's, there's shadows. The substance is Christ. And Christ was resurrected on, the, on a Sunday, the first day of the week. Therefore, you don't look at the shadows. You look at the substance of Christ. And that's what he's basically saying. Look at the Lord's day. But even with that, he gives some wiggle room. And this is why I like the Heidelberg Catechism and, the, and my own personal preference is a continental view. Paul in the 14th chapters of Romans says, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes a day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gave, gave thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And he goes on, for we will all stand before the judgment seat as it is written. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. 
Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I see that as some wiggle room in how you observe. That's why I'm not going to end this with five ways you observe the Sabbath. Five things you must do. This is, this is the beauty of the Christian faith is it gives us room to have to think about it, to deal with it, to get upset when somebody tells you something, but then to process it and decide for yourself how are you going to observe it. There are some things you have to do. And the catechism says this. You've got to be there on Sunday. You've got to be with the people of God. You have to make it a day in which you show mercy and give alms to others. A day in which you deal with your own sinfulness and prepare for your eternal Sabbath. But after that, there's wiggle room. And you have to decide because you stand before the Lord on how you're going to do it. And therefore, I can't tell you exactly what to do. Should we not watch football on Sunday afternoon? No, because they're not playing football anymore. <laughs> Should we watch baseball? Uh, you know, you have, should we go to the movies? That's a double whammy. First of all, you never go, Christians don't go to movies. Second of all, you don't do it on Sunday. <laughs> you have to decide how that's going to operate in your life. But this day is vital for our spiritual health. And the commandment deals with our ability to trust God. We set aside time for worship with our community and rest from exhaustion, labor, as we rest ourselves in Him and His providence and His care. And as we use His Word and the Spirit who will guide us, as how then shall we live for Christ on this day, this Sabbath day, this day of worship, this day of renewal? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you. Thank you that you allow us freedom within the structure or the boundaries of your law. Thank you that you are a God who forgives when we misuse it and then helps to train us how to use it. Thank you that you are a God who loves to work with us and be with us and you have set aside a day where that can happen. Now use this day in our worship, in our preaching, in our being at the table, in our fellowship around the table, in all that we do, that it may glorify your name and benefit us for your kingdom. For we ask it in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen.